Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 331 Behold! Harrod's body was leaning back in the chair, hands on his lap, feet up on the console, his eyes closed. His mind was in the EVR space. Stam stood by the scrolling lines of code, staring at them. Harrod stood next to him, feeling a slight bit of relief at being back in the digital realm where he belonged. You're a real boy now, floated up in his mind, and he shivered. Sam looked at him out of the corner of his eyes. You're right. Just, um, just her, you know, Harrod said. Sam nodded. Yeah, I get it. He turned back to the code. Part of me feels that the next person near me, who wonders aloud how Terrans ever got anywhere since they're all so silly and all so nice, is going to get slapped so hard it'll scramble their S.I.N. Harrod snickered. It's that old meme of the drunk guy eating jab. Behold, humanity, Sam laughed. He leaned his head against the coat for a long moment, his laugh moving to sobs. Harrod patted his back letting him get it all out. Then he looked up. All right, the time dilation is accounted for now. Temporal stabilizers are running at 19% load of optimum performance. Basic buffers or cross-loading systems are online and running at 8% load. Sam stepped back. Okay, this should work. Why can't you just message them through the Solnet connections? Harad asked. And say what, Sam said. He laughed. Yeah, sir, and old madame, I am someone you have never heard of, but should totally trust. Have a complete template and scientific system that I want you to use without spending the next three years trying to understand it. Signed, not a hacker. Okay, yeah, Harrod said, smiling. It felt good. The stars knew there hadn't been much to smile over for what felt like an eternity. Funny thing is, I had people actually give me their login and password by signing at Soul Security more times than you'd believe, Sam said. He snickered. You wouldn't believe how dumb some passwords are. Harrod frowned and Sam laughed. The top five passwords have always been 12345678. The reverse of that, QWERTY123, ABCDFG123, password. He laughed. If not, then their last name with the birth date, crash number. Always so simple, I could scrape the password eight times out of ten with a simple social media. Snuffleupagus. Harrod wanted to blush. He'd used Harrod 228AB528 on over half of his sign-ins, including his bank account. There's a lot of language filters, and nobody has used the system in, well, forever, Sam said, reaching out and tapping the code bringing the system online. I've identified who I need to talk to. I'll use Basic Avatar and the speech translation system so I don't have a problem with the time dilation. Harrod snapped his fingers, summoning up a chair and a glass of whiskey. All right, he said. 
Let's do this, Sam said, and plunged his hand into the code. Four clustered general IMAC tic tac tac lick looked at the numbers on his computer display and sighed at a combination of frustration, exhaustion, and depression. No matter how they tried, no matter how many specialists they brought in, the numbers refused to change. They even refused to slow down. Nearly 25% of the Lanaclan EPOWs had died of severe neural scorching. Three billion living beings. Feeling slightly guilty, he turned off his display and used his data link to order a bowl of vanilla ice cream with walnuts sprinkled on it. He needed comfort. He considered for a long moment of calling Matron Nestelat for reaching out to her for comfort and reassurance. The military channels could reach other systems still bagged up, but he was loath to use official channels just to have his family's matron comfort him. He slowly rubbed his forearms together, registering the urge to lift his hands and start hewing on the tips of his fingernails. The view outside his window was beautiful, but it did nothing to help ease his distress. It offered no solutions, no possible way to... There was a sudden shiver in the air, and Tic Tac stood up, moving back, his hands touching his temple as he pinged security. Before the signal could even go through, a huge, booming noise pulled the air, the concussive force of the noise slamming him back against the wall. The window exploded outwards, his desk shattered into splinters and whipped around us in a circle. The floor was ripped away and exposed the room below. The ceiling was shredded apart, revealing the empty office above him. Glass, wood, metal, chunks of wood, concrete, plaster, carpeting and ceramic showering over the immaculately green lawn and parking lot. A shimmering being of pure, iridescent code stood midair, great wings of gauzy energy streaming from the junction where three human figures had been fused together, each looking a different direction with eyes that were covered in folded cloth. A winding, flowing, twisting eternity symbol of burning war steel covering the staring eyes flowed over each head. The figure was girded in shining armor. The one facing Tic-Tac had a burning sword in its forearms. The one facing the rear held a shield and a lamb in its forearms. And the one facing the rear and the right had scales in its forehands that were weighted with the flickering images of lives lived. Fear not! The voice rang out loud as thunder. Vehicles, windshields in the parking lot shattered. Glass in the buildings for two-mile radius shattered. The voice echoed off the mountains a hundred miles away. I bring thee, General Imaktakalikakak, succor for the Lanaklan in sore need of mercy. Have thy technicians and medical personnel attend the files that I leave unto thee. The three-mouthed figure roared out. The sword lifted to the point at Tic-Tac, and he felt his implant shudder as cold streamed to it. Then to his personal data storage. The hour of deliverance and mercy for thine foes hath arrived, the figure intoned. The entire lawn suddenly flowered. 
the ragged edges of the massive hall in the building was suddenly edged in pure gold. Rainbows appear, streaming from the building and off into the sky. It suddenly vanished. Tic-Tac swallowed thankfully, blinking, and silently congratulated himself on not wetting his pants. Sam looked at her rod and shrugged. Huh, no reply. Well, I left it in his inbox, Sam said. Maybe I didn't have it turned up high enough. The interference is pretty thick. Harod shrugged and offered Sam a glass of digital whiskey. Eh, I'm sure it's fine. Give him a few hours to have it verified by text, then send him another avatar to check up on things, Rod said. Leave it on low power. We don't know how strong the transmitter is. Oh, good point, Sam said, accepting the glass. Do you suppose he knows I left him a message? Ah, he's a busy man. I think it might take him a while to find out, Harod said. End of chapter. Chapter 332 The night sky was empty, and had been for billions of years. Space held nothing but the odd photon slowly losing energy as it traveled through the emptiness. Gravitons were long gone, even chronotrons were largely extinct. In places space-time had ripped apart, leaving nothing behind but something beyond emptiness. Black holes had evaporated away and been ripped apart into smears of not being. In a small area, surrounded by more than emptiness, were a handful of the last remaining. Six massive red giants, the final phase that a stellar mass could hold. Being fueled by huge magnetic fields that extend out to more than emptiness in hopes of stray hydrogen atoms. Around each red giant were dozens of planetary bodies, ranging only from a few dozen miles in diameter to tens of thousands. Each one, no matter what the size, even the ones that orbited masses, that orbited masses, that orbited masses, that orbited the stellar mass, was covered in dim cities where the last sentiences dwell. Their universe was beyond dying. Dying and furs their death throes, some semblance of life still remaining. The universe was dead, had rotted away, and now the powered remains, the bones were blowing away. The sky was more than dark, it weighed beyond empty. There was still some hope for those who dwelled. A small tear, a rip in the dusty remains of space time. Chronotrons, gravitons, and gravity waves had left the realm beyond, a tiny hole torn between the two universes. It had only lasted a second, less than a second, but when every available matter and energy scoop was arranged to find the slightest remaining piece of particle, the tiny leak had represented a vast array of energy to be hoarded. It had allowed the stellar masses grouped together, huddled together, against the more than darkness to operate for almost another eight seconds. Raw gravity waves, graviton still high in excitement from the Big Bang less than half a trillion years before. Dark matter leakage that had streamed through the hole like water through a tiny crack in a dam. Chronotrons that were still at high excitement instead of the exhausted and dark. Those who dwelt had jumped on the leak, tried to reach back. But the tiny gap had closed before they could reach through. It had taken time, 
Time that they didn't have. Time where the chronotrons had become more and more still. More and more flat. More dead. Those who dwelled were almost out of food. Some planets, they had begun feasting on one another in an orgy of semi-intelligent cannibalism. The others did not judge them. Anything to survive to the final moments. Energy. Even the energy expended to be at full wakefulness was something to be hoarded. Now, they knew they needed to expend it. There was somewhere else that could be reached. That fact alone stirred the life of those who intended on attempting to sleep through the end, to hopefully wake up on the other side. One of the suns was consumed opening a new portal, stabilizing it. Beyond was a wealth of riches, matter, energy, of all sorts. Matter that was nothing more than a theoretical historical note was abundant. But most of all, there was life beyond. Life meant something to the dwellers who lived in the small, cold, dark space surrounded on all sides by less than nothing. It meant food. Ancient science had to be relearned. In some places, the food fought back, resisting having their stars stripped away. Fought back against their stellar systems, denuded to when even the gravitons were harvested. Chronotrons were harvested and brought back. The five almost black stellar masses, so purple that they were barely visible against the beyond emptiness, bled to dim life again as the abundant resources of the universe beyond was harvested. Two races were able to stand against the whole who dwelled in the last darkness. Powerful races, huge in number, with servitor races and food species. Those who dwelled below were forced to treat them as allies even as they salivated over the thought of devouring them. Then, somehow, one race found out what the dwellers were doing, how they were harvesting the universe. How the dwellers planned on eventually harvesting all of reality in order to keep their own reality going. Overtures were made. Perhaps the dwellers could migrate to the new universe, leave their old one behind. No, because this universe too would eventually suffer its own ripping heat death. But not for hundreds of billions of years, maybe trillions of years. The two species answered, even as they prepared for war beyond the sight of the dwellers. No, because it would still suffer the fate that the dwellers' own universe had. It was safer for the dwellers to harvest this one and carefully shepherd its resources extracted. But this is our universe. Yours had its chance, the two dominant species stated. Except the dwellers stated, there is only enough for one, and it belongs to us. War tore through the galactic arm as the two species tried to push the dwellers back where they had come from. Things happened during the war, stunning, upset, startling betrayals, shadowed alliances. But the dwellers themselves, who dwelt in a universe almost expended, that existed below the energetic young universe, were forced back through their portal, and the portal closed. But the dwellers were somewhat content. They had harvested enough to keep their stellar masses going, 
even built and ignite two more, even built dozens more worlds. They'd even brought species back for one thing that they ran out of so often. Food. But for all their harvesting, all of their siphoning away from the other universe's vitality, it slowly drained away as the laws of the dead universe ripped away energy and the seven stellar masses slowly cooled. The dwellers had gained half a billion years of existence. More, they had learned that they could extend their existence. They went to war with one another until three of the seven stellar masses were subdued. The losers were stripped down and remade into war machines. The dwellers opened a new portal. They had learned much, researched much, in the beyond cold less than in the emptiness of the dead universe. The fourth stellar mass was sacrificed, the oldest, nearly depleted, even the photons it put out were exhausted. But the way was opened. Chronotrons taken from the defeated were used. The strategy was simple. Force the enemy to fight the same fight over and over without allowing them to reset. Use the exhausted and nearly extinguished chronotrons to rewind them in time, but not in energy or matter, leaving them weakened and depleted even as they were returned to the beginning of the fight. The first scouting attempt should have worked. Instead, it had never been heard from again. The dweller knew that time was short. They needed the vitality of the young universe. The less than nothing and more than darkness was pressing closer. The first attack had been a partial success. Food, mat, and particles had been taken. Far, far more than had been expended. While the enemy, a new enemy, had counterattacked, damaging the vast machines that opened the way between the universe below and the vital young one, and forced the dwellers to close the way. The dwellers had gained what they needed. Chronotrons. They had exchanged their dying, flat, depleted chronotrons for a vast wealth of highly energetic younger ones that still vibrated with the echo of the Big Bang that had created the universe. The taste of youth. A vitality had awoken a hunger the dwellers had forgotten since the last time they had reached inside this new universe. They took their time, upgrading their weapons, building more ships, growing more harvesters. This time, they wouldn't set forth a small force. They sacrificed their dimmest stellar mass, leaving only two. The more than darkness and the less than emptiness grew closer. The dwellers didn't care. This time, they could not be denied. The ancient foes were undoubtedly gone. Those who dwell below stirred to life as the energy was siphoned off the oldest stellar mass, leaving only two to hold off the dead universe beyond. Nothing would stop them from taking the vitality that they deserved. The portals opened. Player 6 has entered the game. All in. End of chapter. Chapter 333. Empire. The ship was an older model. Two wings that could separate into four. Four sublight engines with hyperspace capability. Four heavy lasers and missile launchers. A one-man aerospace fighter capable of atmospheric or space dogfighting. 
the astrogation handled by a robotic unit that was locked into the frame behind the pilot. It was an old model, but recently made, despite the aging of the frame. Anyone who knew the LARP gear could tell that it had been printed to look old. The ship shrieked into existence in the system, immediately broadcasting a non-PVP flag before even the ship's manifest and IFF beacon. It was flanked immediately by Hexwing fighters who escorted it to the planet it was looking for. The pilots of the small attack craft reminded the pilot of the newer craft that was not a LARP system, that any deviation wouldn't be weighed and measured against the rules, but would be met with lethal force. The pilot of the hyperspace-capable fighter was slightly surly as he acknowledged the hexagonal side-mount ships. The ship had to wait nearly two hours for the landing permission, impatiently reminding the aerospace traffic controllers exactly who he was. Finally, the coordinates were given and the ship made its landing. Anyone who was experienced with small craft would have flinched at the fact that the ship left a sooty trail of burnt ablative armor an ionized atmosphere as deflector shields had to bear the brunt of the re-entry. The pilot was obviously not highly skilled. The ship set down in a parking lot of a large building, crushing several cars as it did so. It lifted off, moved, landed on several more, smashing them, then lifted off, wobbling, to finally setting in the clear area in front of the steps that it led down to the large building. The canopy lifted and the ladder folded down the side. The pilot got out, wearing a flight suit and took off his helmet, revealing a sweaty face and a mop of brown hair. He dropped the helmet and got out, climbing down the ladder. The robot, secretly feeling a bit huffy about drawing an idiot, folded up the ladder and closed the canopy, then shut off the engines. The pilot tapped his wrist off out a few times and the pilot suit reconfigured into a pair of light pants, a light white shirt and comfortable boots. A plasma caster rode on his hip as he headed towards the building. The doors opened, white armored figures trotting out carrying a rifle. Smoke poured out of the double doors and martial music played from the hidden speakers. The newcomer stopped, waiting tapping his foot impatiently until the black armored figure nearly eight feet tall strode out of the smoke, his cape billowing. The newcomer rolled his eyes, then stood, waiting, motioning impatiently at the figure and the black to hurry up from the slow, steady stride that he was doing. The figure in black refused to hurry, his breathing coming in mechanical wheezes, stopping only a dozen paces from the newcomer. You look stupid, Vic, the newcomer said. Don't call me that, the black armor figure wheezed. I am Darth Harmonus. You're outside the LARP systems, Vic, the newcomer said. What do you want, John? Darth Harmonus said. Speak quickly and leave. You need to stop this. You've been killing living people, sentient beings, John said, putting his hands on his hips. This isn't a game. This is real people who don't have the advantage of Sud system to save them. Like you did, Harbinus said. What if I don't stop? Who's gonna stop me? You? If I have to, John said. Melody would- You do not say her name! Darth Harbinus roared out as feedback squealing. He clenched his armored fists and lightning, 
red and purple, climbed up and down his forearms. You don't ever say her name again. She was my wife, Vic. I'll say her name, John said. You let her die, John, the black armor figure snarled. Get in your ship and leave. You are not welcome here. Oh, what, Vic? You'll order your men to kill me like they've killed all those innocent people. Violence is never the answer, John snapped back. He wasn't worried about violence from the black armored figure. He'd gotten the best reflexes and muscle memory when he resheathed after his world was liberated. His brain was full of the necessary memories and strategies to win any fight his brother-in-law wanted to engage in. Leave, John, before I remember that you were alive while she is dead, the armored figure said. You have three hours to leave the system. After that, you'll be declared a criminal. That's against the rules, John said. As you said, this isn't a LARP world. Get out, the armored figure began to turn away. Don't you turn your back on me, Victor, John snapped, his temper frank slightly. Oh, what, John? Violence is never the answer. The black armor figure threw John's words back at his face. I've come to put a stop to this madness of yours. One way or another, John said. Darth Ominous slowly turned to face his brother-in-law. Come then and learn the true power of the dark side. John's hand dropped to his pistol, putting it on a sloppy fast draw, his reflexes slightly off from not having been practiced. The pistol came up, the reticle matched where the barrel was and pointed and blinked when it lined up. He grinned and fired three times as a dozen small orbs with blinking lights on them flew out from behind his back. Darth Hominus rocked all three shots with an open palm, his arm out at full extension. The bolts screamed off to the side, hitting vehicles, blowing apart plasteel bodywork. With a twitch of his hand, John's pistol flew into Darth Hominus's hand. You should never have come here, John, Darth Hominus wheezed. John was surprised and more than a little irritated. His drone should have detected whichever drone or armor-implanted equipment he had used the tractor presser beam to pull his pistol out of his hand. Instead, they reported nothing. He tapped on a piece of cyberware in his head, still grinning, as new reflexes loaded up to replace old ones. If Victor wanted to play this, then fine, John would too. Darth Ominous watched, knowing full well that the new drones had picked up everything from the moment John had landed his ship and smashed the vehicles of the two hard-working government bureaucrats. John's clothing fuzzed and then re-solidified his robes as John drew a cylinder out and ignited it with a simple push of a thumb trigger. A length of green energy held in place by magnetic forces slid from the handle with an audible whoosh, humming as John smiled. I told you, I'm here to put a stop to your murderous rampage, John smiled. You should never have come here, Darth Ominous said, his own weapon flying from his belt to his hand. The blade that ignited was solid red. My rage, my wrath is not yet spent. John held back a frown. His cybernetic eye systems didn't detect any deflector shields, no personal battle screens, not even a kinetic screens. 
just Victor standing in black armor. Surrender, Vic, or formality. If nothing, John started, do not say her name, Darth Ominous roared out. He held up one hand at one of the ruined cars, clenching his fist and making a jerking motion. John started to smirk, seeing he'd enraged Vic to the point that the younger man had forgotten to deploy his drones, which meant that there was no tractor pressor beams to, uh, the wreckage of the car hit John from the side, crumpling against John's shields, throwing the unarmed man ten feet across the parking lot. John's implanted reflexes kicked in, letting him roar with the impact, coming up to his feet without cutting off his own arms. His kinetic shields were down by 15% just from the impact of the car. John snarled and brought up the reflex and motor skills package embedded in his cyberware. That's how you want it, Vic, he thought to himself. He brought up his weapons into a guard position. The black, armored figure strode forward, making jerking motions with his hands. John's wide reflexes saved his life as rubble and debris whooped through the air. What he missed was the force blade bounced off his shields, which were rapidly dropping. John deployed a dozen or more spheres from the cargo hatch in the light fighter, grinning. It isn't the LARP worlds, Vic. I can bring as many as I want, he thought to himself, waiting for Vic to start complaining that John was using too many drones. Instead, the black armored figure leveled his fist and lightning gathered around his forearm, snarling and sparking. It leapt from his fists to the drones. Half of them exploded in a shower of sparks and debris. Three of them fell to the ground, carbonized and shorted out and the last three dropped into place behind John, one smoking and whining as the gram system tried to keep it in place. This is the real world, John, Darth Harmonus wheezed, walking forward, training his blade and asphalt, creating a wobbling smoking line in the black rock. You're so quick to try and stop me, but where were you? John was trying to figure out how his brother-in-law had thrown lightning. No warm, no power surge in his armor, just, uh, lightning. He barely got his sword in play, wired reflexes kicking in, managing to block the humming and glowing red blade in a shower of sparks. Where were you? Darth Harmonus growled out. I was there, John snapped, pushing back as sparks showered around them. Darth Harmonus was too strong, John knew there was obviously the armor-enhancing Victor's strength. He jumped back and pushed his free hand out. Hand back, palm forward. Two of the orbs aimed tractor beams at the black armored figure and screamed in an effort as they pushed against Darth Harmonus. The black armored figure slipped back less than five feet, bracing himself. Lightning snarled around his feet and crackled on his calves. Darth Harmonus slowly straightened up extending his force blade at a 45-degree angle, letting it cackle and hum. Breaking news! Terrorist attempts assassination of Darth Harmonus. Scroll by on the bottom of billions of trivies, watched by billions of Imperial citizens. Your powers are weak, Darth Harmonus sneered. You lack conviction. Darth Harmonus pushed out with his hand and John flew back, slamming into the intact car the side of the car caving in. Alarms were wailing in John's head as he shook his head. He wasn't getting any warning, 
No drone powering up. No armor systems coming online. His kinetic shields were already fading. Two of his drones were out of power. Where were you when they forced Melody against the wall? Forced your children against the wall? And shot while they laughed and recorded it for everyone to watch and try me. Darth Ominous snarled, walking towards his cape swirling around him. Billions of beings nodded. They could believe it. They had seen things like that happen before the Empire came. I was there, John said, climbing out of the wreckage, shaking his head. Watching from the crowd. Then why didn't you do anything? Darth Ominous asked. They would have killed me too, John said. Then you should have died with them, Darth Ominous roared. You were sudsed. John barely got his horse blade around in time to slice the empty car in two, as it whipped at him from the side. It felt like a furnace was blasting him with the heat from where Victor was walking forward. A pounding heat full of rage and agony. You weren't there. You don't understand, John gasped, barely deflecting another two cars and a statue of the Lennox Lan. He was down to two drones, the others out of power and he pulled a muscle in his shoulder, getting the false blade into position. I understand you let them kill Melody and the children, Darth Ominous snarled. You watched them. The black-armored figure closed the distance in three long steps, swinging the bread plasma blade. I had no choice, John said, desperately parrying his brother-in-law's attacks. I would have died. I didn't have the choice. You were sudsed. Coward admits to letting his wife and children die, appeared on the Chiron. Billions leaned forward and watched as the robed Terran desperately parried the attacks of Darth Ominous, his face sweating. John jumped back, wiping his brow, holding his false blade out in front of him. Victor was a lot better with that weapon than he'd thought, was a lot more aggressive than he thought. He'd paid for the best muscle memory and wired reflexes that money could buy. He should have already beaten Victor. Still pay to win, I see, Darth Ominous wheezed, slowly walking forward. You'll spend a fortune to try and stop me, as if we're still children. But you wouldn't even risk a respawn to die next to my sister and your children. You don't understand. John tried. No, I don't, Darth Ominous said. Billions of beings nodded. Darth Ominous wouldn't understand cowardice. When I put you down, I'll have you taken care of. Have the neural text try and help you, Victor, John gasped, backing up from Darth Ominous's advance. The suds have been broken for months, Ominous wheezed, laughing at the end. Hello, Menlevolent laugh. Breezing, John checked. Local backup only appeared on his vision. Vic, wait, John said, holding his hand up. His drones followed their instructions, lashing out at Victor with the last of their power, pushing at him with the pressor beams. The armored figure made a fist and the pavement around his feet shattered. The drones whined louder, smoke starting to seep from them. Darth Ominous took a step forward. The drones began to sputter and grind. 
The armored boot took another step. These aren't the LARP worlds, Darth Ominous wheezed, taking another step. Don't kill me, John pleaded. He turned and took two steps. A fast motion threw him against one of the destroyed cars. Darth Ominous kept walking forward. Here, in the Empire, I have learned the true power of the dark side, the armored figure intoned. John used the last of his drone's power to pull himself free of the wreckage, going into a guard's dance. You who watched her die, you talked her into giving up the suds, Victor growled, moving forward slowly. You convinced her to give up suds and kept yours. You watched them execute her. I sudsed up when I joined the resistance. They might have found out if I'd spoken up, John tried. You used to be a rebel. You know, they might have found out I was the one who bombed the police station. You caused her death, Victor roared shoving John back again with another motion. They killed a hundred women and children in reprisal. You don't understand, Vic, John tried again, backpedaling. He's gonna kill me, John thought, sweat running down his face. I have no chance. John lunged forward, swinging his false blade. Darth Harmonus deflected it with his own blade, blocking it in a shower of sparks. You don't understand, John screamed swinging with both hands from over his head. Darth Ominous caught the blade in his free hand, lightning crackling around his fist, breathing his forearm with a snarling red and purple electricity. The lightning caused down the green blade. With a cry of pain, John let go, jumping back half a step, squealing in fright. Darth Ominous cut him in half. Billions watched in their trivy as Darth Harmonus stood over the smoking body. No, I don't understand cowardice, he said. He turned away with a swirl of his cloak. If the robot is an EVI or better, release him. Otherwise, sell the ship, he told the two stormtroopers with orange shoulder pauldrons. Are you all right, my lord? one of them asked. Yes, I am. Darth Harmonus said. He paused on the first step. Now. End of chapter. Chapter 334. The evening was warm, with a comfortable breeze that carried a scent of flowers across the lawn. Festivity lights were scattered about, providing decoration to the lawn. The fountain, which had borne silent witness to many plots, burbled with water and cascaded down lit my different color lights to produce a pleasing effect. The music was soft, tinkling, a comfortable counterpoint to the conversations, even though the majority of guests weren't used to music at all. The guests mingle, many of them slowly overcoming their anxiety at the presence of the minority of guests. They trotted about the lawn, sipping at expensive wines and champagnes, nibbling on delicacies, the lawn comfortable beneath their hooves. Their sashes were ornamented, their vests expensive, their flank coverings lavish. The females wore jewelry that sparkled and glittered. The males wore their badges of rank and office. Mingling through the crowd were the newcomers, bipeds with two arms, only two eyes, only facial hair adorning their flat faces. 
They were large, dense-boned, and muscled from evolving on a high-gravity world. Their two eyes, forward-facing, and as intent as any predator's stare, made more so by the intelligence that they'd shown in their eyes. Their mouths were full of meat-tearing and plant-grinding teeth, silent testimony that to them uh, anything that fit in their mouth was food. Their hands were strong with firm, almost painful grips. They were capable of strength to allow them to hold their entire weight with their hands, and their arms were powerful enough to allow them to lift themselves up by their strong hands. Their legs were thick and muscled, powered, and endurance built into the muscle structure. The majority four-legged herbivore race were very aware of the predators in their midst. It was more than their physique. Their intellect was sharp, penetrating, and deductive. Many of the majority were surprised by the predator's ability to hold intelligent conversations on esoteric topics. From corporate profit margins, to manufacturing techniques, to military theory, to philosophy, and political thought. The longer the party went on, the more nervous some became. Not because of the predators, they were enough to cause anxiety. No, it was the host of the party who stood with the primate predators, often laughing at their jokes, holding intricate conversations with them, and seemingly perfectly at ease with them. They knew the system most high was different. Now they could see that not only was he different, he was their superior in every way. From the way he treated the elderly party guests, to the way he paid attention to the children who he had insisted be allowed to attend, to the way he treated the primates. The party itself was lavish, an outward sign of his power even though he was in exile. But his attitude was far less that of a conquered leader and more of a temporarily displaced noble. The Lanaglan at the party were in awe of their host. Mana Actu slapped the Terran female on the back as he laughed at her joke. It was a dirty, profane joke that had left several other Lanaglan wide-eyed in shock. The punchline of, uh, that's not my 256-pin superconductor connector, had been expected, but still amusing to Manaktu as well as the four representatives from the two local Xeno species, all of whom enjoyed a good earthy jerk. Making his apologies, Mana Actu trotted away from the low-ranking grav striker mechanic and wound his way through the partygoers, slowly making his way towards Admiral Smut. He knew that many high-ranking officials, politicians, and hanger-ons disliked his insistence that low-ranking beings be invited to his parties and treated well. But the two species that made up the majority of the system's population largely worked in factories, mines, and the industrial centers. They also loved ironic juxtaposition and earthy jokes. As far as Manak Tau was concerned, nearly every being at the party with any ranking could be used as a reactor mass, and it would only improve the function of the system. The Admiral was laughing at the joke about the bliss-seeking meditative and the out-of-control ore hauler that had just been told by the Mactanan mining union leader. Mana Actu had heard the joke before and found that the fact that for all the meditative's claims of being above the physical world and material objects, 
the outer control or hauler had crushed the being to death, to be uh, sensibly abusing. A jocular way of reminding one another that we're all living a physical world despite our lofty claims, Manactu thought to himself. Ah, most high, the Mactanan said, bowing. Former most high, Manactu corrected gently. Bah, that is a polite fiction. Even the illustrious admiral would acknowledge the fact. The Union boss chuckled, smoothing one ear. You are the leader that the Manactanan people desire. Even the Karakan have made their desire to allow you to continue to rule, known to the Terrans. I am honored and humbled. Manaktu said, pressing his four hands together. Well, on that note, if you two most high-ranking beings would excuse me, the union boss said, making a motion towards the richly dressed female Mactanad. My wife wishes that I attend to her wants and desires. Of course, the admiral said, nodding. Give your wife my admiration regarding her exquisite jewelry, Manaktu said. The union boss gave a pleased flick of his ears and hustled away. Your mother is looking well, Admiral Smith said, nodding towards the manic to Ooze mother, who's obviously enjoying herself, talking to several female Space Force officers. I am gladdened to hear of a full recovery. I thank you, manic to Ooze answered. His mother had developed a twisted intestine. Botherland and Clan doctors wanted to do robotic-assisted surgery. The Terran Space Force had offered Manic Tu's mother the services of their own medical professionals. The surgery had been entirely non-invasive, an injection of medical robots, all of them extremely tiny. Two hours, and his mother had trotted out of the clinic, exclaiming how she had hardly felt any discomfort. Your mother choosing to use our medical facilities has eased a lot of anxiety towards our medical services, Smith said. Many of my people fear that you will treat them how they would treat you when the situation were reversed, Manaktu said. Not the Mactanan or the Karakan. They have much in common with your people. Smith made a non-committal noise, nodding slowly. The Admiral held up two fingers in a weight motion, even though Manaktu had recognized the expression on the Admiral's face. He knew it meant that the Admiral was processing a large amount of information through his implant. Manaktu felt a small shiver of concern, but suppressed it, knowing that the others were watching. The Admiral blinked, turning to face Manaktu, and again Manaktu felt a slight bit of anxiety at the way the Terran's eyes glowed a soft amber. They always had but it had become more and more obvious, even to the most unobservant over the last few months. Where is the most high Kalamu? the Admiral asked. His father became confused a little while ago, mistaking the scholar for his retirement ceremony, Manaktu said. Most high Kalamu took him home so that he would be less agitated and confused. The Admiral nodded. Is his second most high present? Manaktu nodded, pinging the second most high Pluumu, letting the other Lanaktalan know that he should present himself with all due haste. What is the situation? Manaktu asked. Task Force Agwu just came in system, Admiral Smith said. They've got casualties. Manaktu frowned. The idea of another force inflicting casualties on the Terran Space Force seemed almost impossible. Who attacked them? 
We should discuss this in private, Smith said. He looked at Manic Tu. This involves your system. As the Mactanan and Karakan have made a plane, they want you in charge. While you may be the most high in exile, you still wield an enormous influence in the system. I'll meet you in my office, Manic Tu said. He sent a quick data link message to his manservant to meet the Admiral and the Double Doors and escort the Terran and his two bodyguards to Manic Tu's office. Second Most High Pluma'u, commander of the system's military forces and one of Manak Tu's co-conspirators, came trotting up. Go with the Admiral. There's a situation, Manak Tu ordered. The Second Most High saluted, trotting after the Admiral. Manic Tu went looking for the two people he wanted to include. Shotovlin, the Maktana leader, and Shiklik, the Karakan leader. Both had been put forward by the respective species to act as liaisons to the Terran Space Force, which held the system under martial law. The two leaders followed Manic Tu with no argument, quickly excusing themselves from the conversations that they were holding. Manak Tu arrived in his office to see the Space Force Admiral standing by the desk, apparently looking out the window. But Manak Tu could see that the red telltales on the side of the Admiral's data link. The Admiral was quite busy. Manak Tu trotted behind his desk, sitting down and waiting for an armrest and backrest to swing into position. Once it had, he awaited, bringing up the hollow terminal in the middle of the room. Finally, the Admiral turned and faced everyone. Task Force Agu as patrolling two systems nearby when they came under heavy attack by an overwhelming force of new precursor autonomous war machines, the Admiral said. They broke action twice, performing a fighting retreat. Everyone nodded. That was only logical, seeing as the precursor AWMs were a fearsome opponent. Both times the clankers swallowed them, forcing them into action at a third location, which was between stellar masses, the Admiral said. He tossed up a hologram the size of a task force. Manak Tu didn't consider himself a military genius, but he did educate himself on the realities of the Terran military. Eight carriers, twelve super-heavy warships, nearly a hundred attendant vessels, fifteen troopships, two repair and refit ships. One carrier was gone, two of the super heavies and three of the troop ships, and sixteen of the attendant vessels. In return, Task Force Agu managed to inflict serious casualties on the precursors, the Admiral said. Ma'anak Tu looked at the numbers. For every Terran ship destroyed, they destroyed 36.226 of the precursor ships. How many are expected to arrive? Ma'anak Tu asked. The Admiral nodded. They were heading this way already, the Admiral said. Task Force Agwu bought us a few days and are able to warn us of what would have been a significant ambush. Manak Tu could feel Pluma'u's attention and underlying anxiety. How many of them are coming? Manak Tu asked. The Admiral tossed the false makeup of the precursors into the holotank in the middle of the room. Manak Tu stared at the numbers. He nodded slowly, realizing that what he was seeing. He turned to Pluuma'u slowly. With the Terran's permission, recall the troops, he stated. Prepare the shelters, coordinate the civil defenses. You have my permission to defend your world, the Admiral said. He stared at the tank. 
Task Force Anvil is going to have its hands full. We'll stop them here. They will go no further. And they will kill no more, Ma'anaktu said, staring at the numbers. We stand against them. He turned and looked at the others. Together! In the middle of the room, the enemy force estimates burned in a cold, amber light. Two thousand harvester class. Incoming. ETA, sixty-three hours. End of chapter. Chapter 335. Artgarank 482 was wealthy beyond measure. The three asteroid belts were rich and thick with elements. The three super gas giants and the two standard gas giants were filled with rare and important gases. And the eight solid worlds were full of easily extractable mineral wealth. The Xeno species was a calm one, industrious and hardworking. The natives, the Mactanan, were herbivorous, small, hairy, with small, wide-set eyes, two legs, two arms, a tail. Their expressive mouths were full of plant chewing teeth. They were curious, intelligent, and enjoyed celebrations, as well as ironic and juxtapositional comedy. The imported Xeno species, the Karakan, were a flightless avian with long legs with reverse knee and two different sets of hands. One at the midpoint of the wing and the others with longer and flatter fingers at the end of the wings. Their plumage was dark matte blue with streaks of glossy bright green. The feathers were short and soft. The Mactanan made up 60% of the population. The Karakan made up 30% of the population. The Lanaklan made up 8.96 of the population. 1% was made up of other Xenospecies from the Neo-Sapien species. The remaining were the Terrans. 0.04% did not seem like a lot when pure mathematics was concerned. What with precursor autonomous war machines were coming? Not the earlier versions, the Type 1 and Type 2, but rather the new ones. The malevolent hybrid with new weapons, new tactics, and new ships. 2,000 Type 3 Harvester class autonomous war machines were coming. 0.04% Terrans and Terran aligned species did not sound like much. But Manaktu knew that the Terrans would make a difference far outside their apparent few numbers. He stared at the holotank. The majority of Task Force Agu was already under repair. Artkarak 482 possessed extensive shipyards. In the 16 months the Terrans had been present, they had built their own repair and refit shipyards, with Manak Tu's approval. To handle ship repairs for vessels involved in the conquering of Manak Tu's people, the Lanak lands. Not to say Manak Tu was quizzling. He had handed the Terrans their first pariah victory by surrendering the system immediately, without reservation. He had pinned Task Force Anvil in his system for much longer than a military campaign would have lasted, far more effectively, and without a single loss of life. His loyalty was to his loyal subjects, not to the Council. Never to the Council. Not after what they had done. Manakta'u pushed the thought out of his mind as he slowly trotted around the tank, looking at the system, examining the numbers. 
85% of the troops he had hidden away and prepared in order to carry out the invasion of Council territory were still fit for duty. 96% of his ships and other military hardware were ready for deployment. His ammunition stocks, intended to supply an invasion of Council territory, were at 99.5% usable. His supplies and logistics were ready. It galled him to admit that while his preparations would have been able to face off against even the Executive Council's advanced war machine, they were woefully inadequate to face off against the Precursors unless he was willing to accept horrific casualty rate. Without the Terrans, Manak Tau was confident his people, fighting under his banner, could defeat the Precursors if they were willing to take 80% of military and a 60% civilian casualties. A number that made Manak Tau go cold, as he knew that the losses would not only include his beloved parents and siblings, but many, many other beings' beloved parents, siblings, and children. 60% sounds so clinical, so easily withstood, until you look at what it was that 60% of. 60% of 23.58 billion sentient beings, Manak thought to himself. He reached out and picked up a stalk of gold leaf bush, bringing it up to his mouth and chewing on it as he stared at the tank. Nearly 15 billion dead, and that's with victory. Manak ground his teeth on the tough but tasty, fibrous stalk of the plant. He had shelters for everyone. It would be tight inside, but he had the shelters. When he had mentioned it to the Admiral three months prior, that he had prepared for a counter-invasion by building enough shelter space for all, the Admiral had ordered his own men to inspect them. Now, the shelters benefited from Terran technology and manufacturing techniques. Terrans approached survival with almost a monomaniacal obsession. To be honest, with the red bar LEDs at the base of every Terran skull, he half expected the Terrans to refuse to fight since they no longer possessed a technological immortality. But he had not seen any Terran flinch when the incoming harvester attack was announced. The sheer size of each harvester was a daunting enough, the size of an appreciable continent. Combined into shells, the amount of combined area of the harvesters would be roughly the surface size of 150 comfortable-sized planets. Manak knew that the combined mass of the incoming harvesters, much less their intended vessels, was enough to at least be six resource-rich planets. Part of him wondered what made Art Karik for a Tusa special. The rest of him knew that it didn't matter. He wished he had studied military history better, had paid more attention to the military tactics and theory than he had. He had only spent less than ten hours going in-depth on the information, and realized that it would take months or years for him to become an expert. Time he didn't have. Manak II viewed himself as a benevolent deity to the occupants of Artkarik Foy too. He understood, now more than ever, why most effective deities were a part of a pantheon. He hoped, in the silence of his own soul, that Admiral Smith was an adequate war god. After all, if Terrans were wrath incarnate, then it made sense that the greatest of them all, their military leaders, would be demigod status. 
He hated it, hated having to rely so much on an unknown. He consoled himself with the fact that the devourers had been wiped away easily. Trotting around the holotank tank again, Manaktu looked at the numbers, looked at Smit and Kalamau's strategies to withstand the precursor autonomous war machines. Manaktu wished again that he was more knowledgeable, better educated on military theory. But he was not an omniscient deity, nor was he an omnipotent deity, just a benevolent one. A flashing icon got his attention. His mother calling from the shelter beneath the manor. He waved away the estimations of combat effectiveness of his tanks against precursor armored vessels and answered the good call. His mother needed him. Admiral Thicket looked exhausted. She'd been out of her vac suit for nearly ten hours, but Admiral Smith could still faintly smell the distinctive scent of vac suit around her. We had them hard, pulled them in, then jumped out of the system, she said. They followed us to the next system, where we were waiting. We hit them again, made sure we had their attention, then jumped out again, pulling them with us. They followed us back and forth twice more, so I could be sure that we weren't leaving behind any significant forces. Then jumped between stellar systems. And ambushed them, Admiral Spitz said, looking at the holographic replay. We heard them bad enough that they showed their hand, Thicket said. We were engaged and had them on the ropes when their reinforcements arrived, obviously being held back to engage any system defenders once their advance force was engaged. And you went from fighting just over 100 of them to fighting 3,000, Smith said. Why didn't you pull out? Head for the nearest Space Force base. We did, she admitted. When Smith looked at her, she made a vague wave around her. You... You are the closest, most well entrenched with the most ships, she said. Once we crippled their interdiction vessels, those were a nasty surprise, by the way. We jumped out. The precursors have to follow us because we loop back around four times to hit them again and jump out. They either follow you or you'll rip them up, nickel dime them to death, Smith said, nodding. He looked up. I noticed there are only a handful of the old Type 1 and Type 2 precursors. Thicket nodded. There were more, but we concentrated on them before the last jump. Is boring them still the fastest way to disable them? Commodore Kalkatuk asked. Thicket shrugged. We don't know. Any harvester that's boarded immediately breaks contact and Hull jumps out. We've seen two of them return to the fight. I quit sending boarding parties after that. Kalkatuk nodded. They must not shield their hulls in hell space. That's what my analysts think, Thicket said. Go into Hellspace, unshielded, let Hellspace tear apart the borders, and I didn't want to risk any more troops. Smith looked up at Kaal Anything to add, sir? Melanichthalan stared at the screen. Boarding parties, you say? Thicket nodded. That's the new standard Space Force tactic for the bigger ones, which you compound for hours. And boarding parties, blow the thinking array. You can kill one in less than two hours if your team is properly prepared, outfitted, and deployed. You would need at least double the boarding parties, and there are harvesters, the Lanaclan said. He made a wheezing noise, almost amusing hum. I would prefer a dozen, maybe even a score of boarding parties. That's a lot of manpower. 
Most boarding parties are a full infantry company backed by heavy assault, Lickett said. She stretched and yawned. Her armpits still gave off a sour smell that made most high Kalamau think of unripe marlot fruit. Our strategy for dealing with the Unified Executive Council ships was to be boarding parties, Kalamau said. We have enough boarding parties to dedicate nearly a hundred boarding parties per harvester. That made some eyebrows raise. The Lanakla made the wheezing sound again. When the smaller vessels, the one the size of megalopolises, make plentiful, I think sending boarding parties aboard to disable their primary strategic array would be our best bet, he said. He nodded slowly, clenching all four hands. We'll dedicate twenty boarding parties per each one that makes landfall. The two native species military representatives both nodded. This is our world. We will not give it up, the Karakan said. We will fight next to our Lanaklan and Manictonan brothers, as well as our new brothers from the Terran Space Force. The Mactonan military liaison looked up at Admiral Smith. We are a small people, unused to war, but we will not give this planet up to the ancient rusting junk from beyond the stars that think that they can take what they want. We have a few hours to train. Perhaps you have troops experienced and trained at boarding actions that would feel comfortable in joining the assault teams, Kalamauz said. Smith rubbed the side of his jaw and then glanced at Thinkit, who gave a slight nod. Kalamau noted that all six of the Terrans present had red glows to their eyes. Feck it, we're all in, Smith said. Together, none may withstand us, the Manicton said. End of chapter. Chapter 335.5 Balgrit was a Manicton with brown and tan and cream-colored fur that swirled in patterns across his body. His ears were wide and at the side of his head. His gold eyes were square-pupiled and wide-set in addition to being fairly large. His nose was large and sensitive at the end of his short muzzle. His hands had gripping pads, his feet had walking pads, and he had blunt claws between his fingers and toes from his tree-dwelling forebearers. He was two-thirds of the height of a Lanark Lan, muscular from years of exercise, healthy from a steady, balanced diet, and was toughened by years of training. He was a sword-hoof infantryman, which is why he was standing with his fellow infantrymen in full armor, carrying his weapon and equipment, and drawn up in front of what had to be the largest lemur that he'd ever seen. It was in a uniform that blurred and shifted coloration and patterned constantly. Balgrit had heard it referred to as adaptive camouflage, and after looking around had discovered that it was a duty uniform of the Terran military. It wore an equipment belt with a pistol on its hip. Balgrit had to admit that the pistol looked exceedingly lethal. Heavy, blocky, almost unfinished looking. He asked around and found out that it was a magnetic acceleration weapon, with magnetic coils on the end of the barrel for various uses. From stabilization to putting a spin on it, to separating flechettes for maximum damage. A mask designed to protect against inhalants, from nanites to fallout to chemical or biological weapons, was on one hip. 
All in all, Palgret had to admit that the Terran looked frighteningly efficient and lethal. The Terran was inspecting the armor that Palgret and the other 200-odd members of his infantry company wore. She held the plates by opposite sides in her two hands and flexed her wrists and arms. Palgret had to admit he didn't expect the plate to so much as shiver. Instead, she bent it almost into a U before releasing it. It sprang back with a bell-like tone, and she lifted it up to look at it from the side. Pops right back. Good kinetic recovery, she said. She scraped a nail against it. Superconductor layer doesn't upbraid easily, she nodded. Not bad armor. Lighter than I prefer, but we don't have time to completely rebuild everyone's equipment and train them. How long do we have? Balgrit's commander, Tarmac Numsred, asked. The Terran blinked twice. Fifty-one hours. Numsred nodded, swallowing. My men are fully busted. I was informed that the Terrans would be joining us. The Terran nodded again. Only six of us, a half-squad. Balgret wondered how much difference six Terrans would make. We'll be providing heavy assault and heavy weapon support for your company, the Terran said. She scratched her leg through the adaptive camouflage. We'll be running the assault drones, so make sure your men's gear is hardened against radiation. Numsret flicked his ears in worry. Radiation? We'll have four anti-armor drones. They pack 90mm Hellbore cannon with a maximum output of 500 kilotons a second of firepower, she said. Anti-armor penetrators, but uh, we can go omnidirectional if things get too hot. Um... What other drones do you have? Lumsred asked a question that Palgret was thinking. There is only half a squad, but we're running a full squad's worth of drones, the Terran said. Four Halbor anti-armor, four quad system eight-barrel air defense systems, four six-tube self-propelled artillery drones, six variable drone clouds, two logistics drones. She tapped the black war steel data link. And that's not counting what we're running right here. Algret realized that apparently six Terrans handled enough firepower to stop dead a force much, much larger than he had previously thought. And uh, the six of us, the Terran smiled. She slapped her legs. I'm not armored up, but Terrans aren't exactly easy to put down. She looked around. Right now, I'm here to observe how your training carries over to how you fight. How we fight? We fight well, Numsrit said. No, no. Do you use Trianidad infantry horde tactics? Do you dig in like the Harundarak for extensive trench warfare? Or are you more like humans and do a combination of digging in and rapid maneuvering? The Terran said. We dig in and allow the enemy to come to us, force them to charge our entrenched position, Numsrit said. Several MacDonan grumbled in agreement. Damn, well, it's too late to change your training now, the Terran said. She shrugged. Do you at least train to take the enemy's position or assault enemy positions? No, that's what artillery and bombing runs are for, Lumsred said. We are infantry, not assault. The Terran blinked several times. All right, um, your single function entrenched infantry. Got it, Lumsred nodded. How long does it take you to dig in? The Terran asked. Lumsred slapped the automatic position in place around his hip. Less than 60 seconds, he said proudly. 
A team of four working together creates a fighting position in 180 seconds, can place their weapons 30 seconds later, and the fighting position is fully online within 90 seconds after that. She nodded. That's right, you use pop-up, pop-down style fighting positions, she said. Numsred nodded. Yes. Balgrit stared at what was coming out of the building behind the Terran. A knee-high insect, clad in adaptive camouflage with a flank covering that looked to hold tools. It moved up beside her. I'm here. It grated out from between its mandibles. I am here. The Terran looked down, then back at the company of Mactanan infantry. This is Technical Sergeant 2nd Grade 119, one of my squad weapon engineers. He and his team will be checking out your armor and weapons and equipment. She held up her hand and muttering. We have less than three days, only two local days. He and his men check my own unit's gear as well, she said. Check gear, the mantid chirped. Jackie, Jackie. To Balgrit, he didn't sound very smart and wondered if he was a cast born to just do military equipment tasks. Well, we call him 119. His actual name is the equation describing the wear of magnetic forces on non-ferrous alloys that are part of the war steel laminate, the Terran said. He probably already knows more about your weapons than you do. Checky, checky, the Mantid said again, although this time Balgrit thought he saw some kind of flickering between the Mantid's antennae. All right, let's get your gear checked, issued, and then we'll run some drills. See where you are, the Terran said. Balgrat wondered why the Terran thought she was in charge of the infantry company. Feeling pride in his unit while up. Fall out, she snapped, turning away. Numsret motioned for the infantry company to follow her into the building where the armory was. By dinner, Balgrat's attitude had changed. He'd seen the Terrans do an infantry charge against a static position. One that he was manning, and frankly... He never wanted to see it again. They moved insanely fast, firing and maneuvering, taking cover before any heavy firepower could be brought against them, using their weapons to high effectiveness. Balgrit had even seen one throw a practice grenade nearly a hundred meters in a negligent appearing throw. The grenade lobbed up and dropping down through the firing gap in the bunker. The accuracy of their weapons was almost insane to Balgrit, and even more amazing. Balgrit had found out that the accuracy that they had displayed on the firing range had taken place without the humans being allowed to use their cybernetic systems, which would do nothing but improve their accuracy. Balgrit sat down with his squad, looking at his plate of steam, boiled, and fresh vegetables. Did you see that human jump over the wall? Stangat asked, setting down a stalk of gold leaf. They all nodded. The wall had been over the human's head, and had it just run up, jumped high enough to grab the ledge, and flung itself over. Watching them mount the high wall was even more terrifying, Critmax said, referring to when the team of six Terrans had run up to the wall and quickly helped one another over in less time than it would have taken Palgrid's squad to set up a siege ladder. Commander Shu Ulaluka, a Lanak Talan infantry officer, moved up and sat down with the Mactanan soldiers. What is your opinion of our new allies? He asked carefully. Palgrit looked around, then looked at the Lanictalan directly. We do not understand why they have diluted their strength by breaking into smaller units and combining with us. The Lanictalan closed his eyes for a second, 
but his tendrils remained gently curved. When he opened his eyes, he signified amusement. The Terrans believe that the whole is more than the sum of the parts, and that we will all fight more efficiently together. What do you believe, sir? Stangard asked. The Lanikalan tapped his own chest with his two hands. I believe that they have resoundingly defeated every race and force that has gone to war with them. He put all four hands on the table. I personally believe that working with the Terrans will ensure my family survives this war. They all nodded. They knew Commander Shuluka had two calves and a colt as well as a beautiful wife. Palgrit went back to the food as the commander got up and moved to another table. The others talked about how they weren't sure how much the Terrans would help. Palgrit had realized one thing the others hadn't. It seemed like it should be a small thing, Maybe the civilian part of him still thought it was. But he was an infantryman, and the small thing loomed large in his mind. The Terran had been a soldier for over 200 years. That, by itself, wasn't a small thing. The small thing that loomed large in Palgrave's thoughts was simple. She had seen in combat. Nobody at the dinner table had. The purpose of a Bolo Continental Siege Engines is to deny the enemy landing areas, the Terrence said, this time dressed in body armor. She looked like a big bug. A Bolo can shoot down a gin in orbit, even take out a Balar with a clear shot. That big 250mm gun that it packs could blow a crater in your moon that you'd be able to see. Everyone nodded. Lumsred had asked how the Terrans knew where the AWMs would make planetfall. The Glankers won't be able to land near a single bolo without being reduced to scrap metal. And since we have them working in teams of five, with an entire bolo battalion defending this planet alone, that leaves the Glankers with very few places that they can land, she called out. The troop transports started dropping. The city has been evacuated. Everyone is in shelters. Anyone who did not follow the government's orders is shit out of luck, the Terran female called out. We have 30 hours to prepare fighting positions, requisition some ammunition and supplies, and create rally points, build medical treatment areas, as well as establish vehicle rearming and refit areas. The transport thrusters screamed for a second before it set down with a thump. The doors rolled open, revealing a park. The trees scorched and charred. Other transports were settling down. Balgrit's entire infantry division was going to be a part of the forces defending the city. Balgrit jogged out, his platoon pulling off to the side. The six Terrans split up, three jumping out almost immediately, the other three following the platoon that got off. The other four platoons followed, all of them jogging in perfect time. His stomach was clenching already. Thirty hours remaining. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.